Welcome to another edition of BartCast, a podcast series curated by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. Learn more at bcm-net.org. Well, good morning, Myers Park. We're delighted to have been invited by your pastors to help curate your focus on the body in this jubilee year for your church. We want to begin by adding our warm congratulations to all of you on this 75th anniversary year. We honor and thank all of you for your faithful service to and love for this community and for God's church particularly you elders. Thank you. Indeed, we warm ourselves by fires we did not light. May the word today comfort all who are struggling and animate struggle for those of us who are too comfortable. Amen. Needless to say, we are not living anywhere close to a season of jubilee in this country at this time. Not only are economic and racial disparity back on the rise, just as troubling is the growing normalization of the vicious public discourse of scapegoating and demonizing those who are still struggling to be fully included in the American story. Black folk, immigrants, people experiencing poverty, and gender and sexual minorities. Meanwhile, those with enormous privilege are disingenuously casting themselves as victims of social change, and painting those who seek to bridge and heal social divides as dangerous and unpatriotic extremists. There is an ill wind blowing across the land as we move into the midterm elections. It smells like the subversion of democracy. Now, we Christians know in our gut that the politics of categorical exclusion and othering is wrong, and that our churches are supposed to struggle against it in order to remain hospitable and compassionate. But 50 years after the assassination of our country's greatest prophet, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., we seem to have forgotten how. We are inveterately timid in addressing social divides, settling for vague allusions to the problems, only to quickly salve our anxieties by invoking a rhetoric of reconciliation that actually costs us nothing. Fortunately, or inconveniently, as the case may be, our Bible is far less polite and far less equivocal. And today's readings give us a significant dose of this straight talk. 
And seriously, friends, we did not ask for these texts. Feel free to blame the lectionary. Thank goodness for the lectionary. Witness the two readings of our silent meditations this morning. Proverbs 22 insists that people who have extreme wealth or people who are living in poverty are equally valuable to God, which means the affluent are not to be treated as more important. It also warns that social injustice inevitably leads to collective disaster and exoriates those who rob the poor simply because they are poor, which is to say, who take advantage of those who are socially vulnerable. These assertions are scorned by our current regime. Psalm 146 states the other side of the coin from the biblical perspective. God is vigilant about these very issues, says the psalmist. The divine job description is a classic litany. Executing justice for the oppressed, giving food to the hungry, setting prisoners free. Lifting up those who are bowed down, watching over strangers, and upholding the orphan and the widow. These are all active verbs in the present tense. Can we, as God's people, say the same about our priorities? In today's liturgy, we then heard from the dreaded epistle of James which makes such matters uncomfortably relevant to our churchly lives. James equates acts of social favoritism with functional atheism and asks why we Christians offer warm welcome to the affluent but take pains to keep socially marginalized marginalized folk out of our sanctuary. The fact is, we middle-class folk exhibit such discrimination daily at church, at home, at work, and in our neighborhoods. According to James, we have things exactly bass-ackward. When we ignore the working poor, treat homeless folks as if they were invisible, or criminalize immigrants We disrespect those whom God specifically blesses. Moreover, we who despise downward while aspiring upward forget the fact that it is the affluent who destroy the ecological commonwealth for profit, who litigate against the public interest, and who take the money and run. But our worst behavior claims the epistle, is when we pray for those who are hungry or are victims of abuse or lack health care, but never seem to get around to translating our concerns into concrete acts of mercy or effective advocacy for more just policies. 
The only true solidarity is that which seeks to meet the somatic needs of marginalized people. No wonder that historically church leaders as prominent as Martin Luther wanted to ban the book of James from the canon. It speaks to our condition just a little too plainly, as Quakers would say. So you at Myers Park Baptist Church have declared this anniversary year as a jubilee. And Chad and I have been invited to reflect upon this with you all. And perhaps to relieve your pastors from having to preach on these texts of terror. (laughs) We'll do it for you. Indeed, Proverbs, the Psalmist, and James each represent strands of both testaments that took the Jubilee tradition of the Hebrew Bible very seriously. The gist of that tradition is that persistent structural social disparity is simply unacceptable from the divine perspective. Jubilee visions represent a very hard word to our middle-class churches in the U.S., where in myriad ways, large and small, personal and political, we have made our peace with social and economic inequality as a way of life. We are practiced at holding the biblical ethos of equal justice at arm's length. And I invite you to just notice the emotional distance all of us have already constructed towards the readings this morning. So why are we privileged American Christians so deeply entrenched in our ambivalence regarding the biblical insistence upon a more just social distribution of the gifts of creation? We suggest that at root it is this, We worry about what real personal and political change might cost us. And today's gospel addresses this very issue. This morning's gospel reading offers us two healing episodes. But given the density and intensity of all of today's lections, we'll... Settle to just focus on the first one. At this point in Mark's story, Jesus has journeyed to the far region of Tyre and Sidon, a coastal region northwest of Galilee that was considered outside the geopolitical scope of Palestinian Jewish society. Indeed, this was the homeland of Israel's historic enemies, the Phoenicians, a.k.a. the Philistines. Jesus is way outside of his Galilean bubble. And here is our first lesson. Jesus ventures into spaces far outside of his comfort zone. And that commitment to deconstruct his own insularity is perhaps the greatest challenge to modern suburbanites. Leaving our bubbles To encounter the other is our single most important spiritual discipline. For Jesus, outside his bubble, 
He encounters a Gentile woman whose political body was completely othered by Galilean Jews. This exchange will serve now as a dramatic object lesson in radical inclusivity for the Jewish body politic. The episode begins when the woman falls at Jesus' feet, appealing on behalf of her offstage daughter who is ill. Now, because we're unfamiliar with what constituted social propriety in Hellenistic antiquity, we miss the scandal of this encounter. In conventional Mediterranean honor culture, it would have been inconceivable for uh, an unknown, unrelated woman to approach a man in the privacy of his retreat. Worse, she's a Gentile soliciting favor from a Jew. Mark's description is emphatic. She is Greek, he says, a Syrophoenician by birth. Yuck. You could just feel the original Judean readers cringing. The fact that this interaction is an affront in every way to Jesus' ethnic and gender propriety explains his initial rebuff, which polite churchly readers like us often find troubling, even though, frankly, we do the same thing all the time in our daily lives. Jesus is simply responding in a manner that would have been expected from a Jewish male. He is rhetorically defending the collective honor of his people by putting her in her place. Just ask a person of color how often this happens to them still, in subtle and overt ways, in daily life. Unfortunately, we can't sugarcoat the fact that Jesus is insulting this woman. Doggy was a popular Jewish epithet for Gentiles. A rabbinic saying of the time asserted that he who eats with an idolater is like one who eats with a dog. Exodus 22.31 commands that unclean meat should be thrown to the dogs. Jesus' stipulation that the children must first be satisfied then proceeds to use the table metaphor to assert his ethnic bias. Jews, my people, are first. We have covenantal primacy. I don't know, something akin perhaps to the rhetoric of American greatness that has been so militantly revived in recent years. We can suppose at this point the expectation was that the conversation between Jesus and this woman was over. But it's not over. Because Jesus' eating metaphor is boldly turned back upon him by this uppity woman in a brilliant and surprising retort. Yes, Massa, but looky here, even the dogs under the table eat the crumbs meant for the children. Time suddenly stops. Everybody freezes. Protocol has been strained to the breaking point. Oh, yes, she did. Dared to challenge this rabbi using his own words against him. Of course, she's only doing what he did, defending the right of her people to the table. But from the male protagonist's point of view, she done gone too far. Jaws dropped. We wait to see what will happen now. 
Because these are fighting words. Talk back that could earn the lash or worse. In our history, folk been lynched for less. We don't know how long that awkward moment lasted, hanging in the air while everybody tensed up. Anybody tense right now? I imagine Jesus looking at her long and hard, feeling the indignation rise within him, assessing his options. But then, unaccountably, the one who has and will master every other opponent in verbal combat throughout Mark's story, here abruptly concedes the argument. You know, he says, you're right. My bad. And that, fellow citizens of presumptive privilege, is what we call a WTF moment. You see, it's worse than a concession. Jesus responds with a wholesale affirmation of her counter-argument. Because of your teaching, he says, the Greek term here is logon. In the beginning was the logos. The demon has left your daughter. The female outsider has enlightened the rabbi. In the narrative logic of Mark, she has reminded Jesus of his own assertions regarding inclusion made in the immediately previous episode. Some of the few of you who weren't on vacation last week will remember the gospel lesson. Nothing from the outside can make you unclean. Jesus has been hoisted on his own petard. Now, interpreters debate two possible ways of reading this episode. Should Jesus be understood here to have been admitting that he was wrong? Or should we see this as Jesus having allowed himself to be corrected in order to make the exchange an object lesson. seems to me that either way, the payoff is the same. Jesus' honor as a Jewish male has been severely affronted by a Gentile woman who has bested him. But you see, this is precisely the problem in honor culture, then and now. It requires winners and losers. It's what underlies the current backlash against gains made by women and minorities and vows to make America great again. This gospel story, however, models a different approach. Jesus' response abandons both male prestige, his political body, and the collective honor of his people, their body politic. They are not the ultimate value to be defended. They are not the ultimate value to be defended. They are not the ultimate value to be defended. They have been transcended by the ultimate value of human solidarity. So this exchange ends with a radical redistribution of race and class and gender power all in one big messy bundle. Jesus is modeling what we might call the cost of discipleship in the conviction that the short-term pain of seeming to lose face would be utterly eclipsed by the only goal that matters, namely, that all God's children deserve to be satisfied. This gospel story has been paired in our lectionary with those hard-hitting texts that Elaine began with because it is only the human face and pain of the other 
that can help those of us living in bubbles to see our blindness. Our personal and political health depends utterly on encountering the word they have for us. When social boundaries of privilege are opened to welcome the other, the in-group inevitably perceives itself as having been diminished. Thus, the frustration of slave-owning whites in the South after the Civil War fueled a violent backlash to Reconstruction in the 1870s and the construction of Jim Crow. A similar backlash to desegregation happened a century later and continues today in the resurgence of the alt-right. But there is also a counter-story of white folks who recognized that when black people assert nothing more or less than their equal humanity, it represents an invitation for us to regain our humanity that has been disfigured by ideologies of racial superiority. In this morning's adult forum, we briefly mentioned Clarence Jordan, that venerable, radical Baptist from Georgia. Jordan took his degree in agriculture from the University of Georgia and completed a Ph.D. in Greek New Testament from Southern Baptist Seminary. Then he decided to go learn from poor black sharecroppers in America, Americas, excuse me, at the height of the Cold War. Not exactly a great career move. But not only did that move transform Clarence, his Koinonia Farm experiment has had an extraordinary impact on our churches. Even us non-Baptists have been influenced by his cotton patch gospel, and in our case, very intimately. Ched's dearest mentor was Clarence's mentee. So in this Baptist house, we say Clarence Jordan presente. If you don't know who we're talking about, then that's one of your assignments for the 75th year. Now, we're going slightly over time, but not as over time as Reverend Barber. <laughs> so to wrap this up, let me just say, interestingly... Uh, Jesus' defense of Jewish primacy against the Syrophoenician woman uses the Greek verb kortatso, let the children first be satisfied. Mark uses that same verb in both accounts of the wilderness feedings. You see, Mark says that story twice, repetition being the key to pedagogy. And each of those conclude with the phrase, and all ate and were satisfied. The first loaves and fishes story preceding today's reading takes place on symbolically Jewish soil in Mark's narrative landscape. The second feeding follows our gospel and occurs on Gentile soil, which is to say throughout this entire narrative sequence, Mark's Jesus is both showing and telling the central jubilee principle of the divine economy. There is enough for everybody. The American history of social change also turns on struggles over the right to eat.
For example, Cesar Chavez ended the first of his three hunger strikes in support of farm worker justice 50 years ago this last spring. A devout Catholic, Chavez chose to break his 23-day fast in March 1968 at an outdoor mass in Delano, California. 4,000 supporters were at his side, including the soon-to-be-martyred Senator Robert F. Kennedy. Cesar's deeply personal fast ended with an ingenious public liturgy for justice which helped change the struggle of low-income laborers forever. A second example comes closer to home, showing how challenging the social protocols of segregated table fellowship can change the world. When four young African-American college students sat down at a Woolworths lunch counter on February 1, 1960, to order a sandwich. They rebooted a nonviolent revolution that had been brewing since Montgomery. Within weeks of that Greensboro protest, tens of thousands of young people, black, white, and brown, were sitting in all over the South and beyond, laying the groundwork for the next eight years of civil rights struggle, which ultimately overturned American apartheid. We should never underestimate the power of a strategic meal, especially when it defies boundaries. So in today's gospel, Jesus leaves his comfort zone and then encounters and embraces the other in a way that deconstructs his own delusions of entitlement, all in pursuit of the dream of God that welcomes everyone to the table. Our task as church, a task which is at once both prophetic and pastoral, is to help our people, our citizens, ourselves, all of us who are deeply anxious about preserving our privileges, to see that true liberation lies in learning from the very people we fear or exclude or ignore. Risking communion with The political bodies of those we other is our best hope, friends, for healing our fragmenting body politic. How we can organize to create those opportunities will be the subject of our forum tonight. We hope you'll join us and some of our local colleagues in that conversation. Dear friends, as the subsequent gospel story that was read this morning puts it, this Jesus can help those of us who are deaf to hear and those of us who are silenced to find our voices, but only if we follow him outside our comfort zones. Amen. You have been listening to the BartCast, produced by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. To find our resources or to donate to support the Bartcast, please go to chedmyers.org. Thank you for listening.